back to the Blockument. I'm Nate Talbot, Executive Director of Detroit Blockchain Center. And to my right, I have the lovely... Ashley Rose. I am your everyday mother, uh, reseller, and I am on a crypto journey to learn what all of this stuff is about. Yes, yes. She's not just on a journey, she's doing it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. We have a special guest in the house today, Mr. Rob Korsdor from Facings.io. How you doing? Very good. Thanks for having me on, y'all. Thank you for coming. Uh, Rob is almost one of my mentors when it comes to the whole blockchain crypto space. He was one of the first people I met um, in my journey, especially coming out publicly and before I got into educating and stuff. Um, yeah, some of my first deepest conversations I remember having with Rob. He enlightened me and helped me think around issues and still does it to this day. So today we're going to be talking about proof of stake, um, what it is, why we use it, what it means, and that whole deal, different tastes and varieties. This is a 201 podcast, okay. so a little warning to people who are still sort of new to the space. Um, you're free to listen and catch what you can, but you might want to go check out our first episode, What Are Blockchains and Why Are They Useful? And uh, episode two, where we sort of talk about what the difference between some key cryptos are, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, and that type. That might lay down a good base foundation for you to be better understand what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but on that tip, um, before we get started, we're starting something new called our, right now, Mempool Minute. Take <laughs> yes. it away. Yes, so the current block height is 778,380. Um, and Ultimus Pool won that. And the total fees that they won were $146,081.45. Nice. The total size of that block was 4.02 megabytes. Wow. All right. And which blockchain is this we're talking about? Um, Bitcoin? The Bitcoin okay. blockchain, right. I'm like, oh, is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to start uh, time stamping the show using block heights. So if you ever want to know the authenticity of when we uh, recorded this date, this show, that's the block height. Yes. All right. But moving on, that is Bitcoin and some proof of work. We're talking about proof of stake. Yes. What do you know about proof of stake, Ashley? Uh, not a whole lot, other than didn't Ethereum just switch to that? Uh, so okay, so I think Ethereum just switched to it, right? Um, and I assume that it's connected to staking, mm-hmm. um, which is where you put money into something where it's locked away and you get interest back on it. So that's all I got. All right, we'll remember that. So you know what's going on, Rob. I always ask her in the beginning, like, whatever we're talking about, yeah. tell me what you think, and then yeah. we summarize it with, tell me what you think again, and see if it's changed at all. Yeah. That's how we know if we did a good job. <laughs> yes. Love it. What do you uh, What do you think about Ashley's answer? You agree what's, with proof of stake? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty spot on. Oh, okay. It's pretty close. Um, you, could, you could have a staking mechanism that didn't pay you yield so that's one thing it doesn't have to be yield producing it usually is but it doesn't have to be 
Um, and yeah, I mean, <clears throat> in general, it's locking, locking up that stake, those tokens. Uh, stake, you know, stakes in a company is another word for equity. Stakes in a blockchain are usually the core token. When you're staking it, you're um, risking it in a sense okay. because you can't just immediately sell it because it's time locked. Okay. And uh, the time locks vary too. So it just depends on which system. It can be designed many different ways, I guess. So, like, what would an incentive be for, like, why would you want to stake? Like, if I own, if I was holding a coin, um, like, why would I want to stake it? Yeah, great question. So, back to your answer, I mean, some sort of yield is generally how they incentivize that. Mm -hmm. um, however, in some systems, you have to stake in order to be able to vote with those tokens so it could be uh, a, a way to access governance rights that the tokens kind of grant so uh, you know you stake and then you have that many votes proportional to how much you staked so that you can participate in the network governance somehow or the system governance if it's a DAO on top of another network I'm not sure if you've defined DAOs on the podcast before so we might want to define that too well, let's let's take a step back first. Uh, what the hell are we talking about? Why would you even stay? What is? So I know Bitcoin. You do proof of work. We boy of the oceans, and we produce funny math to verify a block, so we know nobody's sort of uh, cheating the system, right? The most expensive lottery in the world. Most expensive lottery <laughs> in the world. So what's the deal with proof of stake? Why? Where does this come from? It's a good question. Um, I think the onus for exploring proof of stake really came down to uh, efficiency, people trying to find ways to secure a blockchain network, which at the end of the day is distributed consensus. So Bitcoin, we know, does that very faithfully, very in, in a way that is very very much probably at this point impossible to co-opt mm -hmm. um, and it's very expensive to do so but that's not to get into the debate whether that expense is worth it whether that's a net good or not right I believe it is uh, but yeah the research into proof of stake was to you know driven in part by hey can we achieve distributed consensus in a more efficient manner, whether that's energy efficiency or otherwise, you know, blockchain efficiency. Can we make a network that can perform uh, better uh, across certain metrics, leveraging proof of stake uh, as the underpinning? Because we know proof of work is energy intensive and costly and also somewhat slow. Um, right. So depending on what you're trying to do, that might be perfectly fine for for what you're designing or what you're trying to accomplish. If it's some other use case, like a gaming use case, you want to have a, a, a game that exists on a blockchain, you might need more performance. Yeah. And so one of these other systems that leverage proof of stake may actually be uh, more useful for, for what you're trying to achieve 
usually when I say you, I'm talking about a developer, not right. a consumer. I'm talking about someone, a business, or someone who's trying to produce something using this technology right. to eventually reach consumers. Okay. Um, so I know Proof of Stake started, I think it was PeerCoin that was the first Proof of Stake. I think they really developed the concept of, hey, and it was a uh, hybrid think they used proof of work to like um mine the coins and they use proof of stake to secure the chain is that do, do you are you familiar with pure coin I'm Man, not, I'm it's not been so coin, long so. but i do remember some of this mm -hmm. a little bit um but really it's kind of part of the history this blockchain crypto web3 whatever you want to call it space it evolves so quickly yeah i mean a period of six months feels like 10 years yeah <laughs> so when we're thinking back what happened 10 years ago unless you have the historical record right which is usually on bitcointalk.org or some other forum right which i mean is a treasure trove of history um it's really hard to remember the details, yeah. even for someone who was reading it at that time. Right. <laughs> uh, well, but yeah, it was something like that. I can't. E I remember there was a. I, I feel like the guy who created Proof of Stake. I remember his his name, which mm -hmm. was like his online name was Sunny King. Right. Yeah. So was he the Pure Coin guy? Yeah, he's one so of the Pure Coin guys. There's a couple. I don't know. I think Sonny gets all the credit for the proof of stake development. So the other guy must have been on the proof of work side. He, Might have been. That was yeah. his, it was his job. <laughs> um, yeah, that's all I really know is that it started there. Um, I often I'm very interested myself in like proof of stake. Um, I don't know if it works on a scale. Sort of. I agree a lot with what you said. Um, use case matters. Yeah. I don't know if it makes sense for Bitcoin, right? Like, if it got proven to be just as secure and robust as proof of work, I don't know why you wouldn't just go ahead and use less energy than, you know, if you could. But I don't know that it's gotten there. Um, and I think one of the confusing points with proof of stake, it was one of our first conversations, you might not remember, um, but we were talking about sort of mechanics behind uh, how that works because it's evolved even since we first talked like in 2017 or 16 or whenever it was that uh things like to me the game theory is what's different right proof of work i consider being um competitive game theory are you familiar with game theory ashley not entirely, not entirely no we're not going to make this a game theory episode, okay. but it sort of matters because that's what this is all sort of about with the, like Byzantine. Um, Does it mean like the strategy that you do so, like do something? Yeah, it's basically a strategy. We won't get into it, but basically, like to me, proof of work is competitive game theory, right? It's I don't trust anybody. I'm going to act selfishly in my own interest. And if everybody, assuming everybody's going to do that, the incentives are aligned. And that's proof of work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, assuming everybody does that, then you don't trust anybody else. That's why Bitcoin has don't trust verify. And I just look at my own copy of the blockchain. I don't trust if Rob's going to send me a Bitcoin for something. I don't trust when he says I sent it. I look at my copy, my copy of the Bitcoin blockchain and say, oh, I see Rob had it. I see I have it now. I don't trust his word. I'm not trusting some random wallet. 
right? Theoretically, I'm just looking at my own copy. Now, nobody really does that <laughs> anymore, right? They all uh, yeah. use some kind of trust system, but that's proof of work. Where proof of stake seems more like there's cooperative game theory, which is if the, everybody in this room is part of the network, we trust everybody sort of has best incentives in mind. And then we take precautionary measures in case somebody cheats. Versus Bitcoin, there is no precautionary methods. I'm assuming everybody's cheating all the time. That's why I'm very selfish and I'm only concerned about my node. So where, like in proof of work, you have to be proactive, whereas in proof of stake, you would, if something were to happen, you, you would need to be reactive? I think it's reverse. Oh, reverse. Um, nothing really happens. If, if Rob cheats, like the network, if Rob does something that's against the consensus and the proof of work, mm -hmm. the network just ignores it totally, right? Okay. Um, you have like 51% attacks, you have some certain things that are, but with like a 51% attack in both systems, um, you really only get to double spend your own tokens. It's not like if I took over the Bitcoin network with a 51% attack, I can randomly spend your tokens, right? Mm -hmm. I can only spend my coins or double spend my coins or renege or do whatever with my transactions because that's the only ones I got the private keys for. Um, same is true with a proof of stake system. The difference is in a proof of stake system, like Peercoin, right? One of the this is where the uh, one of the attack vectors in a proof of stake is the nothing at stake problem, right? That generally means if you if we're all validators, what's stopping us from cheating? With big, with a proof of work, I'm spending energy, yeah. right? Um, so it's an external resource. The coin has nothing to do with the consensus mechanism. It's just the reward for playing fairly in the mechanism, right? <clears throat> Proof of stake, you're not using energy. So you have to take the internal mechanism, that coin, and you, you like Rob was saying earlier, you're risking it. You're taking some of that yeah. or all of it, and you're sort of locking it into the network. You're doing a deposit, and you're saying, in exchange for me doing this, Instead of playing that proof of work lottery, mm -hmm. the system is going to somehow randomly pick stakers to validate the block. And what happens if one of them cheat? And that's where it's like slashing comes along, right? The concept of slashing is like, well, if you cheat, then we'll slash them. So with ETH right now, you got to put up 32 ETH. If you cheat, if you go offline, if you do something, They'll take some of your ETH away. So Tr trust away bonds or truth bonds. Right. You're, you're risking financial value now, and that's supposed to counteract the nothing at stake problem. Right. Which is, I can try to recreate uh, a thousand chains in parallel, and it doesn't cost me a thousand times the energy. Right. Which is where nothing at stake came from. Um, I'm actually not a proof of stake expert. I'm a delegated proof of stake expert, which is a what does that mean? Yeah, I'd love to uh, talk about it. So <clears throat> there's a couple. Uh, so rewinding back to the early history, 2012, 2013 era, mm -hmm. BitShares dropped. That okay. was the first blockchain to do a collateral back stablecoin that mm -hmm. would eventually become or the same model would be used to create Maker and DAI on okay. Ethereum uh, a few years later. But it was sort of testbed on BitShares. And another thing BitShares brought to the table was it was the first delegated proof-of-stake blockchain. Okay. So rather than your tokens letting you be a staker, 
Mm-hmm. Your tokens let you vote on who you think should be stakers. So your tokens essentially let you hire, help choose who to hire to run the network out of all the nodes that are participating. Uh, and the idea is kind of, well, multifold. Um, it's functioning more like a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, in right. the sense that as a token holder, I am helping choose, make decisions on behalf of the network, weighted to the skin in the game I have, how many tokens I have. And uh, what that essentially creates is more of a representative system. Um, and so that that was pretty interesting because now, if you think about it, it's like the tokens give you representation right. in how the systems run. Um, the other side of that is <clears throat> it allowed us to optimize for performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does create m- kind of more of this human messiness in the system where you have humans trying to figure out how to coordinate, how to make decisions, how, how to write proposals that are worth voting on, what are the right constraints to say whether a proposal passes or not, mm-hmm. uh, what are the attack vectors there, can someone run multiple nodes and, f- and try to hide in, in uh, what we call run sock puppets so it's like hey i'm running two or three nodes instead of just one which kind of undermines the security of the network Uh, but one interesting thing back to the nothing at stake discussion the uh there was another innovation in bitshares called transactions as proof of stake that cryptographically made it so that any new block or any new transactions in the chain must cryptographically validate every transaction before that. So every block header, which is metadata for a new block on a blockchain, Bitcoin has block headers, ETH, BitShares had block headers too, still Mm -hmm. does, would reference a cryptographic hash that... uh, basically implicitly validated every prior transaction. This meant that nobody could attempt to create a separate history to do the nothing at stake attack. And this is one of the most important innovations in proof of stake that's very misunderstood or just glossed over because it's kind of a techie detail. And systems actually use this? Are other systems using this? Yeah, so Steam, Uh blockchain, which would become Hive, is another delegated proof-of-stake chain. They use it. Um, EOS, WAX, any Antelope or EOSIO chain, Antelope's the new name for the protocol. They all use transactions as proof-of-stake, or you see it abbreviated as T-A-P-O-S often. So if you ever see TAPOS, they're talking about that. Interesting. Um, But, yeah, that that basically solves... Again, um, it, it mitigates the nothing at stake problem. Interesting. I'm going to pause because that was even new information for me. Mm-hmm. So I know you got to have questions. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, I was going to say. Um, so does that the T A P O S does that that increases security? Is that what that function is for? Yeah. The idea is <clears throat> essentially they call it. Uh, 
weak subjective consensus in a vo in a, system, a voting system like this. Mm -hmm. So, hey, we've got all these humans. They're flawed and that's part of being human. Like we have our own character flaws yeah. and our own <laughs> philosophies and subjectivity and beliefs and we're all coming together over the internet using the tokens we have to try to govern the thing together. Yeah. It's a messy process. It's inherently chaotic. Yeah. Uh, and we're still, it, it's continually being experimented on. But to answer your question, TAPOS helps us solve one of the potential, like kind of more hard objective attack vectors of proof of stake. So we can just focus on, hey, how do we coordinate? Which in my opinion, is one of the hardest problems humanity has ever grappled with. Right. We see governments, all these different governmental systems, all these different ways people are coming together to try to coordinate. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what people are trying to do with blockchains in a lot of way. Or they're trying to make the blockchain rules so objective and pure, like Bitcoin, that it's obvious what the rules of the game are. Back yeah, to even, game theory. Even with Bitcoin and any proof of work um, system, Bitcoin being the primary driver of proof of work right now, right, is you still have that human issue. Like over the past few months, really a couple years goes back. Um, it's one of the big issues. Like how do you merge a new idea into proof of work? You need mm -hmm. people still got to do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so and they have a very loose sloppy consensus way because there is no formal coordination mode to do it. It's versus, chaotic. It comes like down to state. like how do the Bitcoin core developers decide what their rules are to try to include new stuff and how do they talk about it and how long do they wait. And how do and, they convince somebody like me who's not a developer to even download it and install it because yeah. yeah, my node doesn't the node operators. Right. Yeah, exactly. But proof um, of stake handles that differently and delegated proof of stake. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about how to update Bitcoin, right, it's mm -hmm. a very slow process. Yeah. But at some level, it's probably true that all of the people who run the biggest mining pools get together in a room and talk, whether that's a virtual room or not, and say, oh, hey, are we going to take this or not? Because if they update or if they decide to take the update, then it, they they create this situation where, uh, like, they represent, I don't know how much, probably well over 90% of all of the hashing power. So they're pretty much saying, yay, yay, we're going to take it. And, uh, and then everyone else is like, well, they might hem and haw a bit or say, we're going to do a, a soft fork or we're going to... We're going to fork entirely, but then they have to, the onus is on them to create a whole movement yeah. to make enough noise. Otherwise, everyone's just going to go with the status quo. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, in that way, I think Bitcoin is really useful and I like it and I like to use it for like money in a sense. But the token holders don't have representation. It's the people with the hash power. They have the votes. Token holders don't really get to say... Well, I have 50 Bitcoin. I should have this, like, influence in how the network runs, unless they're running nodes, too. But not every token holder runs their own nodes. Well, let's, well, let's talk about that. And 
not so much on the proof of work side. That's very true, right? How many Bitcoin you hold, any proof of work, how many Litecoin you hold, how many Monero you hold, um, has zero representation over how much power you hold over the network, right? Yeah. So, like, in Bitcoin, Michael Saylor's been the big whale lately buying up the him in El Salvador, basically buying up all the Bitcoin. But he could own all the Bitcoin. He has zero sway over the consensus mechanism or how anything happens. Because um, if he doesn't run his own node, it doesn't matter. If he's not a miner, it doesn't matter. If he's not a developer, it doesn't matter. Um, in proof of stake, all the forms, so I'm bubbling delegated proof of stake into this, um, one of the advantages and disadvantages is that how much of that token you hold does directly influence, if you stake it, it does directly influence how much control you have over the network. That was my next question. Yeah. Now, so hostile takeovers are in play. Potentially. Like, from my knowledge of how it works, right, it's in a very small network, it's very easy to just buy up the um, supply and run it. Um, in a at-scale network, Ethereum being the, probably the largest at-scale network there is, that's a proof of stake, I mean, you have to buy up 51% of the stake. And as you buy, you're driving the price up, making it even harder to buy. There isn't even 51% for sale. Right. At so, any given time. Right. So it becomes really, really hard to do it. So it's a disadvantage yeah. because your stakers earn more of the coin that they can now stake and get more influence. And you capitalize the people. So ever, say you want to perform a 51% attack mm -hmm. or try to take a majority share so you can control voting in some way right. in, a, in a system that uses voting to influence its core, you capitalize everyone you're attacking. Right. The attack is like, oh, I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to make you rich by attacking and then, it. Yeah, because market forces drive the power or the price up because you're trying to buy every single token that's available. For sale, yeah, that's... and and so then what? What could they do? Well, they could sell and then try to coordinate a fork and just take their community over there after you made them rich and use the money to make this other, you know, new version of whatever network that didn't get fifty-one percent attacked better. Right. And now they have more money to do so. So it's really it's quite. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen a proof of stake system that at scale, which I don't know what we want to call the cutoff, but mm -hmm. successfully attacked. Um, a really interesting case study in that was Justin Sun, who's the founder of Tron um, blockchain. A proof buying of blockchain. Up, yep. And he bought a company mm -hmm. that had about 30%, I think, of the token supply of the Steam blockchain. That's S-T-E-E-M. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a social media chain. And so Steam It Inc. sold the company to Justin Sun. Uh -huh. They had a large controlling stake in the network because it was partly, partly how they bootstrapped their whole company and project. Hey, let's, let's release a blockchain that's got proof of work on it temporarily so that we can mine it as soon as we release it. And then... Now we don't have to raise external capital. We don't have to um, pr 
pre-mine, like allocate part of the supply to us, but we can participate in the initial mining, mm -hmm. get a ton of tokens, and then use those tokens to run our business for the next few years. So that was their strategy. Anyways, we see why that was a bad strategy in the long run, because it allowed that company to become a honeypot. Right. Dustin Sun buys the company. What's he do after? He starts trying to put his own validators in the top 21, which right. is on a delegated proof-of-stake chain, the, the nodes that actually run the blockchain. Right. He starts doing this, and then the pre-existing Steam community that didn't have any reason to respect him or um, believe he had the best interest of the overall network in mind right. were like, oh, hell no. And it, there was this war where they started coordinating all the whales they knew to try to anti vote against Justin's son and all this, but eventually Justin wins. Right. And what do they do? They take their ball and they go home. They say, never mind, you know what? <clears throat> we're going to fork. We're going to fork at this particular block. We're going to call it Hive. We're going to come up with all our own branding. We're going to take all the validators. We're going to take all the community we built over four or five years. You can't buy this community, Justin Sun. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And they succeeded. Right. So back to my point about, hey, you can capitalize, um, you know, you can capitalize token holders, and then they can move over to some other chain, rename it, and then say, all right, this is the new truth. That's exactly what happened, and Hive arguably won right. the fork war there. I think so. I mean, Steam, it's theoretically dead, right? I have no idea what the state of it is, but... I don't think anybody does, which is why I think it's dead. Or, or it, might, it might be that it started to focus more on the demographics Justin Sun markets to, which would be right. more Asian, whereas, you know, it's always been a global project. Right. But I don't remember there being a huge Asian community, and I'm not trying to generalize, but I do remember some Korean posters on Steemit, mm -hmm. a f fairly large Korean community, and, uh, you know, various force. There's a Russian fort called Golos. Uh, there is probably some projects focusing in China as well. So I don't know if Justin Sun got traction eventually over there, because there's definitely people who believed his side of the... Uh, story or his chain was going to be the winner versus Hive, but what we see today is Hive is effectively the real Steam, uh, just with a different name. We uh, have this cool thing called the Internet. <laughs> I'm going to look it up as Ashley. Yeah, check it out. I have a billion questions because <laughs> I got a billion, so go for it. Yeah, um, but it kind of seems to me like not to like put a damper on things, but it kind of seems to me that like. That might not be good then, because if if people have a lot of money, they could buy a lot of power, like in governance. Is so? Is there a way to like hedge against? Is that is that what you're talking about with the forking or like? Well, that's that shows like the last resort scenario. Like that's the most messy, uh, problematic, like uncertain you know it's not good for anything that's priced by markets to have uncertainty mm -hmm. usually they go down when there's uncertainty like prices go down yeah so that's a very messy but we could argue it's it was a natural phenomena and we see if we go if we take i don't know a step back 20 years 
just look at internet projects that are open source. Mm -hmm. So open source means anyone can view the code. Every blockchain that's of note is open source. And that's how we verify that this system doesn't have what's known as a backdoor or some huge exploit because anyone who's an expert in computer science or cryptography can look at it, study it, and say, I'm signing off on this. Yeah. It looks good. And so that's really important. But if, if we look back to how open source projects are governed and like how even the Internet itself you know, came into maturity, which, I mean, at the end of the day, the Internet's seven layers of all these different types of protocols and tech kind of munged together in such a way that we have this awesome illusion you know, where we can, oh, there's all this awesome stuff happening. It's the page is moving. There's things loading. I can log into profiles. I can do all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> that was built up slowly over time. And that's kind of the story of computers, you know, just building and building and building and building on top of, of the same idea over 80 years. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, we can look back at, like, how the Internet and some of these open source projects were governed and how um, when, you know, there was philosophical differences, there would be what's known as a fork in the code, mm -hmm. which is where we get the word fork from, when the code branches off in two directions. So what was one became two. Mm -hmm. And then these can branch off and these can branch off. Yeah. So it can branch as many times as right. it needs. And uh, it creates a... a uh, essentially uh, a mechanism for people who believe in a different philosophy mm -hmm. to peacefully branch away and do their own thing. I think that that's useful. Yeah. But, you know, if, if it was a well-governed project, perhaps there would be a really formal way to propose changes and have discussions and debate and come to consensus together, build consensus together to make decisions about how to evolve the thing to avoid the forking yeah. To keep everyone together in the same lane. Yeah. But at some points, you know, maybe there's such a philosophical difference. Now we need to do that. Yeah. So I guess that comes back to if we can figure out how to coordinate well, we yeah. might be able to make decisions collectively uh, that improve, that move the needle forward, improve the project, and keep everyone in the same boat instead of sawing the boat in half yeah. and having... Yeah you know, them kind of be cobbled together and going off in different directions, so. I've always, <clears throat> one analogy you made years ago that stuck with me was uh, when you talk about these systems, and it doesn't really matter whether it's which kind, um, you look at it sort of like the U.S., right? You got a democracy, 50 states make up the one U.S., and you're like, uh, similar to like this, Anybody who disagrees with something, you can sort of go off and fork. It would be sort of like uh, seceding from the union, right? Te Texas. Mm -hmm. It's like, Texas, we're going to leave. We're leaving. We did it before. We'll do it again. Yeah. We are out of here. Oh, um, and that's sort of what that's like, right? It would, uh, yeah. Only, only the result of a state seceding is going to be violent, <laughs> whereas... Well, the these blockchains get to scale enough, and you, some of them, there's not... I. I would hope that violence wouldn't succumb on a gaming platform. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about 
money. Huge sums of money and value, yeah. Value and some of these other chains that are trying to do all that. Right. It might resort. Well, we already see people get tortured and, uh, you know, hurt over public knowledge that they have crypto. Yeah. They get extorted for it. That's why you shouldn't Which is why talk I should about put the disclaimer what you right have. Now, I am crypto poor. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same. <laughs> and I, I mean it. I mean, shit, it's all there on the chain. You can go look. But uh, as a bootstrap startup founder, most of my value has found itself into the companies right. ra- rather than uh, just being stacked on my own personal side, yeah. So, which is totally fine. Well, okay, I have a question. Like, wh- what kind of companies would benefit from being proof of stake? Like, we're talking so in depth about this, and like people having such you know discrepancies and ideals. But like, and like, what kind of companies like would this? Let me lead, example? and then. Take it, take it home. Um, one of the interesting things, there was a proposal. I don't know how old the proposal was, but I just learned about it about a year ago. Um, proof of stake has very fast finality, right? Um, so, like Rob was talking about, if you want to do gaming, if you want to do something, even daily transactions, right? I don't want to go to Starbucks and have to wait 10 minutes for it, or even 15 seconds. You ever been to a grocery store and just waited for your debit card or whatever to get approved, and it takes like five seconds. You're like, what the? Yeah. Right? Um, You want that really, really quick. Um, Proof of stake chains are really, really good at that, right? Doing very quick finality. The problem starts, to my understanding, comes with these long-range attacks, right? Because... Depending on how, again, when we say proof of stake, we're talking about, like, if there are, for every single blockchain that exists that's not proof of work, that runs some form of proof of stake, they run a very different consensus on how that proof of stake works, right? Stake has a very different meaning. But in general, uh, you do something, you know really quick it's done. The question is, five years from now, is it still done, or did the did the network get co-opted because proof of stake at any real scale hasn't been tested yet, so we don't know. Um, so, like, an interesting mechanism was do Ta- everything Tapos. proof of stake. Yeah. Tapo solves the long-range attack. Okay. I, you're going to have to explain it because I'm not familiar with it. That's what I brought up earlier. Oh yeah, on the delegated oh, proof the of stake chain. Oh, the tapos, the transaction. Yeah, because it it doesn't allow you to make an alternate history. Right. Which is what a long range attack is. So I'm curious if anybody besides Antelope is doing it. Um, to my knowledge, there are one, two, three. I'm going to say four major flavors of proof of stake. Right. There's the Ethereum flavor. Um which is super complex, right? Um, You have the delegated proof of stake, which mostly, even if it's not on the EOS IO, most, there's a lot of chains who are delegated proof of stake. They They might not call it that. that. Yeah. They'll talk about staking and all that. But if you're taking your tokens and having a vote, right, with a, 
validator, letting a validator vote, you have a delegated proof of stake. Um, so there's a lot of chains that do that. And then there's like this tendermint approach, which is like the Cosmos, Binance chain. They're all built sort of using this tendermint Cosmos SDK, which is sort of a mixture of Antelope, EOSIO slash Antelope, and Ethereum. And they sort of mixed how that works together and created a tendermint in Cosmos SDK and that whole stack off of that. Um, and then the fourth variety is some random chain that doesn't do any of that. <laughs> and then you've got the dApps that define, or decentralized applications that define their own staking rules in a smart contract on top of one of those networks. Right. And then that can, so so the number of different designs is almost unlimited. Yeah. Because every... Uh, decentralized application on Ethereum that has staking has its own rules, its own reason to stake, its own benefits, its own token reward, whatever it may be, right? Its own thing. So uh, yeah, so that's where it's like it. It's there's the phrase proof of stake is very general. There's really no one size fits all. Yeah, that's explicit kind of definition. So I do want to delve in um, on a. One of my hesitancies with proof of stake in general is just that it's, A, there's no real definition, right? Um, you could say that true probably with proof of work as well. There were several different flavors, um, but they all resorted to the same thing, right? Some external resource to produce on-chain results. Um, with proof of stake, it's in, inherent to the system. That's the commonality, but then the flavor changes a lot. But something that's popping up in a lot of these proof-of-stakes, delegated proof-of-stake chains, proof-of-stake chains, is something called liquid staking, right? And to my understanding, and we can think through this, if, or maybe you got a hard answer. I've sort of brought it up to you before. Um, there's this thing called liquid staking. Have you ever heard of it, no, Ashley? No. So... With proof, any proof-of-stake model, the idea is take some coins that are native to the chain or the app chain or whatever you're using and risk them, mm -hmm. and that's the key word there, risk them, mm -hmm. in order to A, either help validate the chain yourself or to dedicate yourself to a validator who will validate the chain on sort of your behalf. You're voting for somebody to act on your behalf. Um... If you take your tokens, we're going to use Ethereum as an example. This is not unique to Ethereum, though, right? But we'll use it as an example. With Ethereum, you need 32 ETH to become your own validator, okay? Um, a problem for me with proof of stake is as the coin price goes up, yeah. the cost to validate goes up. That's a downside to me. It's like saying every time, uh, it's like with Bitcoin, proof of work, as the miner cost goes up, less people can really afford to buy a miner. an incumbent in advantage. Yeah. Um, but let's say you got some ETH, Ashley, and you want to stake. Yeah. And you don't have 32. And you take some of them, and what you can do is you can go to somebody like Rob, 
who has the infrastructure, he has all the software and the complexity needed to do proof of stake, and he says, well, look, I'm pulling together a group of people who don't have 32 ETH, but together we do have 32 ETH and we can run our own validator node. So all of us pool our ETH together, we work with him, we, we basically give him custody of our ETH mm -hmm. so he can therefore stake on our behalf. Mm -hmm. Well, there's only one way to prove you gave him ETH, he has to issue you a receipt, okay. right? Yeah. Ashley gave me five ETH, so he gives you our ETH, Rob's ETH, mm -hmm. right? This wrapped ERC-20 token thing that you can always give back to him and he'll give you back your five ETH. So you got this receipt, and that's all it's supposed to really be. But now, because people want to use their ETH, right? Oh, I see where this is going. Like in DeFi or in any other thing, these DeFi protocols that say Aave, for example, they're like, well, Rob's pretty popular. Everybody's using our ETH, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to accept our ETH as collateral, just like we would ETH, and peg it one-to-one -to, -one to the ETH. So now you have this liquid staking, right? So you're staking your ETH, but you're getting the receipt, and the receipt is just as good as the real ETH. You have this derivative. Mm -hmm. We talked about derivatives before. I can't remember what episode, but go back, and we we're talking about, like, what is money in finance. Yeah. The money in finance episode, we talk about derivatives. So if you know what I'm talking about, go check that episode out. Yeah. Um, but you have this derivative ETH now. The, to me, the risk is removed. For Ashley, at least, she's got this wrapped ETH. And then all she needs is one platform. All she needs is some DeFi network or centralized exchange that will accept wrapped ETH and let her get her ETH back. And so for you, she... But then can I ever recall, like, try to get it back from Rob? Why does it matter? You no. got your ETH back. You gave the R ETH away. You traded your receipt. I want to, I will say, just at a high level, Nate, yeah. <clears throat> the risk isn't removed because you are trusting an additional layer of complexity when you get the R ETH. Right. So as long as you have, once you get rid of the R ETH, whoever took the R ETH has the risk again. Right. Whoever has the R ETH is assuming, however, our pooled funds are stored in a smart contract or whatever mm -hmm. uh, that isn't at risk to hacking at risk to rug pulling at risk to some sort of additional systemic risk because it's implemented in a smart contract i mean we've heard numerous times of things being hacked and people losing money uh so there's always that systemic risk addition because you so added one additional layer risk yeah mm-hmm but at the same time, and I don't have, I would I would word it better if I had like the hardcore like no this is why it's not right I don't know that it's not right it just doesn't feel right what it feels to me like is the 2008 crisis <laughs> yeah it feels like because what that's what they did they took risky mortgages and kept bundling them with good mortgages. But then those good mortgages got worse and worse and worse, and they just started bundling bad mortgages as bad mortgages as bad mortgages, and then sold them, since there's so many of them, all of them can't go default at once, it's a good mortgage. And then, then everything collapsed. And I feel this is, this is the risk of derivatives, period. And I feel like when you're doing, 
I see strong arguments for proof of stake, delegated proof of stake, any flavor of proof of stake, when there's you're really just staking something and putting that risk, and that's that. Mm-hmm. Once you start adding derivatives, I feel like you're cheating the system somehow and skirting around that risk, which lessens the security that the proof of stake is supposed to guarantee. It just feels that way. I don't have any hard evidence. I could be totally wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm open to that. It just feels I haven't, wrong. I haven't studied it deep enough, but I generally agree we're adding complexity when we create derivatives. Now, whether we've done all of our, uh, you know, polish work, oh, we got the smart contracts security audited and or time-tested, or this is battle-tested stuff, and we're not worried about there being some new exploit that can drain the contract or, yeah, at the end of the day, you're right. It's people who are clever playing additional games, financialization games, and whether or not that's good or not, I think really is hard to say because you could make an argument that, oh, by doing all this financialization stuff, we've increased some efficiency somewhere. Right. but, yeah, I mean, it's adding complexity. And whenever you add complexity in a software system, you put yourself at risk. You increase risk. Risk right. of something going wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and this kind of reminds me, um, this reminds me of a proposal that didn't pass on EOS. Mm-hmm. There's this idea, hey, what if we gave people an amplification of their voting power based on how long they staked for? This is actually something we've seen codified in a lot of Ethereum-based DeFi systems now. They call it VE, or Vote Escrow. Whenever you see VE whatever, Mm -hmm. they're referring to Vote Escrow. So if I lock for two years as opposed to one, I have double the voting power. If I lock for four years, I have quadruple the voting power. If I lock for six months, I have half the voting power, or whatever, based on some relative... Thing. It's sort of like quadratic voting. It's like quadratic investing, but with voting, right? Yeah, it's saying the the longer you're willing to have skin in the game, mm-hmm. the more that your vote should be amplified because you have a longer term alignment with whatever the system is. I see. Now, yeah, I think different. one of the reasons that this didn't pass on EOS back in the day or one of the debates was, hey, I mean can't if we if someone stakes for 10 years is there some way to create a derivative that allows them to still trade Mm -hmm. you know or allow yeah like the liquid staking idea some sort of loophole that will kind of undermine the intention of the vote escrow right and i felt like you know we never tested it because it didn't get approved but i felt like that was one of the uh, one of the shortcomings or one of the dissents against that update was, hey, these exchanges, they're going to let you short, they're going to let you make options, they're going to let you do all this financialization stuff, which I'm not saying I'm an expert on, but someone's going to find a way to make this, to undermine what we were trying to do with this, so let's not even go there right? kind of thing. Yeah, unintended consequences. It's like mm-hmm. MEV, the whole... Minor or minor extracted value, right? Now they call it, they don't call it minor extracted value anymore because it's big on ETH and ETH doesn't mind. They call it a minimum maximum extractable value, right? Front running 
front running the plebs. Such an that's awful really design flaw. Right. If you had, if you asked me, I'd say that's the worst design flaw with ETH, and it needs to be fixed. Well, it's not just ETH specific though, right? It's any any smart contract platform, any place you can do DeFi, you run into Mev because and Mev, Mev is that mine the. The maximum it's, it's when value. some it's when it think of you know what high frequency trading is on Wall Street yeah so that's when just for anyone out there it's when I put I plugged in my computer with a fiber line super close to mm-hmm. the Nasdaq so right. that I can use really sophisticated software and algorithms and trading strategies to see what you're trying to do and react on that and get my stuff in before you right. even right. though you 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 had you you, you put your intention good. out there you're like I'm going to do this mm-hmm. I heard that mm-hmm. I'm in the middle and I'm saying oh you're going to do that I'm going to do this so that I can milk a little bit off the top from you right and and so I'm using your information you put out there responding to it in an exploitative way it's an exploitative strategy Mm -hmm. and then yeah basically screwing you over because you're less sophisticated yeah Mm -hmm. as as remember our episode one which Mm -hmm. i told everybody at the top of the show to go watch Mm -hmm. or go listen to right remember when you're talking about what is a blockchain yeah it's just an order of transactions but before you get on the block you got to broadcast you got to yell out hey i want to do xyz now when you're doing something simple like just transferring money from party a to party b there's no way for party c to really front run that because they're not involved in that really at all but when you're doing things like trying to do a decentralized exchange like a dex Mm -hmm. there's a lot because you're saying hey i found you're sophisticated enough to say like hey i found a really good trade i'm going to trade some some Polygon, some Matic for some, I don't know, uh, sandbox, right? Some sand. You found a really good trade on that, so you submit that to the decks. Rob, this is what he's saying, he mm-hmm. could see that, mm-hmm. and he's like, that's a really good trade, but what she doesn't know is I could do X, Y, and Z, and if I get my transaction up above yeah, hers, yeah. I can basically jack your price up a little bit. I might yeah. raise your price up by 10%, but Rob is getting that 10%. Yeah. And um, this is and all. This can be done because of what? Because miners are willing to prioritize yeah, the transactions based on how big the fee is. Right. Rob's going to so pay So if I increase fee. the fee by 5% and I can make 10%, yeah. I'm still making 5%. And I'm getting in there earlier. Yeah. But you're making that 10%, and the miner and Rob are now eating off of you, who found a very general, decent trade, but you're just not a you're not a high-end trader. Like Rob was saying, that's how Wall Street works. Like, literally, people used to set up their, mm-hmm. like, they would go across the river from where Wall Street, where, where uh, the Wall Street, like the NASDAQ trading floor is. Mm-hmm. They would set up, like, as close as they could get. I think federal, federal regulations set a boundary so they would be like in new jersey which is just outside that boundary mm-hmm. because they have a i mean it's just information right yeah. if you're in california at your computer trying to trade against somebody who's in new jersey yeah they have a slight millisecond advantage on you because they're closer to the source yeah yep and that's basically what this is a miner is closer to the source than you the user got it so the miner 
could extract extra value, minor extractable value. Got it. This is one thing that I really appreciate in the antelope design. You cannot reorder the order of messages. Yeah. It has to be in the order of the timestamps. Mm. There's no fee priority system, so there's no reason for a validator, like Detroit Ledger Technologies, for instance, right. to uh, try to set up this sort of like... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm a mercenary, and I'm just gonna uh, sell to the highest bidder, right. the space basically, or the priority. Nope, it's just, hey, I'm receiving messages; they're all time stamped. I'm gonna replay them and broadcast them in the order that they're signed mm -hmm. by the time stamp. Yeah. So it's just like, hey, who got it in first? That's who. That's, that's who gets it. Yeah. There's um, some interesting work being done there, and I want to talk about that, but we're also about reaching the time. So for all the listeners, we're starting a new thing. So we're about to wrap up the live show, but we're going to record some extra content that's going to be available on, I don't know, I guess maybe YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> YouTube only. So make sure you go to YouTube, subscribe to the channel, um, and catch the extra content we talk about. But before we wrap up, um, I've introduced you. I told people you're from Facings.io. You've just mentioned Detroit Ledger Tech. Um, tell us really who you are besides, like, one of my role models. Who, who are you? What do you do? What do you Sure, do? happy to. So, uh, yeah, thanks for living. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for inviting me on, Ashley, Nate. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm Rob Konsdorf, as mentioned. I am a technologist. I've got a background in software engineering. Uh, I am also a startup entrepreneur, co-founded a couple different blockchain companies, Detroit Ledger Technologies being my first, uh, which, you know, also mm -hmm. backed Nate's uh, Detroit Blockchain Center. So Absolutely. we've we've been collaborators for going on five, six years now. And, um, yeah, my interest is really just in ha ha having an impact in software. And when I learned about uh, blockchain technology back in 2012, 2013 era, uh, I, I immediately felt that there was a lot of potential here. So I really started to specialize and focus in it and get involved with these different open source projects. So I've always been a self-starter in that respect. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, Detroit Ledger Technologies, we run different nodes on Antelope networks. We do software engineering. Uh, so, you know, we've helped build various kind of cornerstone uh, projects for some of these networks. Um, you know, like worker proposal systems, um, governance and voting portals, um, and a number of other projects. We're also interested in bootstrapping new ventures. So that's where Facings comes in, which is what I'm currently working on and leading up uh, the team. And um, so Facings is an NFT launch pad that's meant to streamline launching NFT collections for folks that aren't experts in Web3. So. Mm -hmm. We're making it dead simple, streamlined, uh, user-friendly, and uh, really just working on allowing collection owners to tap into their own creativity and not have the tech get in their way. Uh, and there's a lot, you know, that's a whole other episode, perhaps, diving into what you can do with NFTs and all of that. So I won't go too far there, but essentially we believe that this is going to be one of the main 
ways blockchain technology gets adopted uh, by the world is through uh, the usage of NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which are basically representations of digital property. And um, yeah, so I, I'm someone who likes to challenge myself. I like uh, long walks on the beach. <laughs> I like hiking. I like bourbon. Thank you very much.